assistants in Hollywood to sexually abuse numerous women that he worked with. As soon as one woman came out with her story of suffering at Weinstein's hands, many other women told their stories as well. It turns out that Weinstein's sins were an open secret in show business. Everyone seems to have known, but no one said anything. Some kept quiet because they feared their careers would be over. Some kept quiet because they were ashamed. And some kept quiet because they assumed nobody would believe them anyway. Perhaps some kept quiet because they just didn't think it was that big of a deal. But that's how the Me Too movement, what we talk about this morning, truly came into its own. Weinstein's exposure in Hollywood opened up the floodgates for similar stories in other spheres of life. CEOs of major companies, beloved figures in the media, professional athletes, politicians, both Republican and Democrat, were accused of using their power to sexually exploit lower ranking female co-workers, friends and even women that they barely knew. And while the Me Too movement is primarily focused on men sexually abusing women, it's not limited to that. Some women have abused men. Some men have abused other men, and some women have abused other women. And men and women alike have abused children. One actress explained how the movement got its name, Me Too. She said, we want to give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. Now, before religious people like us and churches like ours get too full of ourselves, demonizing Hollywood and the media and all these rich people who did these horrible things. We should realize that we're not exempt from the problem. We have our own sins to repent of as well. Within the last several weeks, an awful report was released detailing numerous cases of sexual abuse by hundreds of Roman Catholic priests in the state of Pennsylvania, dating back decades. Like Harvey Weinstein in Hollywood, it appears that lots of people knew but few people said anything. This follows the already massive Roman Catholic sexual abuse scandal of the early 2000s, centering around cities like Boston and Dallas. Steps were supposed to be taken that would eliminate the cancers within the Roman Catholic clergy, but apparently those measures weren't enough. And before we Protestants look down our noses at the Catholics, we should remember that we're not squeaky clean either. Sexual abuse and immorality scandals have rocked some of the most prominent evangelical churches in America. Pastors have resigned, conferences have been canceled, and congregations have split or even closed altogether. As a result of this, many people have concluded that churches are no more trustworthy than the examples of Hollywood, business, and the media that we just mentioned a moment ago. Sadly, far too many of us have not taken Paul's guidance in 1 Corinthians 8.12 very seriously. Paul says there, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The actress I quoted earlier is right. Powerful people, and particularly powerful men, sexually abusing others is a problem of great magnitude in our world. So what should the church say about this? And what does scripture have to say about this? And what do we have to offer a watching world full of both victims of sexual sin and perpetrators 
as well. With that, open your Bibles to Judges chapter 19. Feel free to use the ones we have here if you need to, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray together. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you, to worship you through singing, to worship you through giving, to remember the broken body and shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that your son's body and blood wash us clean of sin. They wash us clean of guilt. They wash us clean of condemnation. Father, thank you that you love us regardless of what we've done, regardless of what's been done to us by your grace through Jesus Christ. And Father, as we think about and talk about and pray about a sensitive topic that may have hit very close to home for some of us. I pray that you would give us wisdom and humility and healing for those who need it. We love you. We praise you. We give you all the glory. We thank you for Sunday morning. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Author Justin Holcomb, also a pastor, describes sexual abuse as any type of sexual behavior or contact where consent is not freely given or obtained, and is accomplished through force, intimidation, violence, coercion, manipulation, threat, deception, or abuse of authority. Now, to even begin to understand the magnitude of the problem, consider some of the statistics. It's estimated that one out of every four women and one out of every six men are or will be victims of sexual abuse at some point in their life. 80% of the time a sexual assault occurs, the perpetrator is an acquaintance, someone you know and trust at some level, not the shadowy figure in the alley, though that, of course, is possible as well. Some form of sexual assault occurs roughly every two minutes in our country. And for those sexually abused as children, the chances of being sexually abused again as an adult skyrocket. Now, as someone who's never faced that pain myself, it's difficult for me to even attempt to summarize the effects of sexual abuse. But those who have experienced it will tell you that it is nothing less than traumatic. For some, the trauma is short-lived and possibly even forgotten. But for many, perhaps far more, the trauma is far from just physical and is anything but temporary. That trauma can last a lifetime, manifesting itself in feelings of shame, guilt, anger, despair, and a distorted sense of self-worth. It can also lead to a vicious cycle of self-destructive actions and decisions. So we may never know it, but if you think about the numbers we just read, there's a good chance that we come into contact with victims of sexual abuse on a regular basis at our schools, our work, our neighborhoods, the grocery store, and maybe even our church. But not only may we come into contact with more victims than we realize, but we may even come into contact with perpetrators. So again, what do we Christians have to say about this? What do churches have to offer? And does scripture have anything to say about it for our guidance? Now, Joshua mentioned that one of the most depraved and disturbing stories in all the Bible is found in Judges chapter 19. 
It's not a popular passage to preach. You'll see why here in a moment. But it may be relevant to what we're talking about today. So starting in Judges 19, verse 1. In those days when there was no king in Israel. Stop there. When there was no king in Israel. We see that same phrase in Judges chapter 17, verse 6. And then we see it again in Judges chapter 18, verse 1. In chapter 17, we also see it added that when there's no king, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's safe to say that this is an ominous way to begin a story. But then as you read on from verse 1, you see that a Levite priest wants to reunite with his unfaithful concubine. Now, even though we might describe her as unfaithful, there's no indication that this woman committed any type of sexual sin. She must have simply gotten fed up with this man and moved back in with her dad. It's also curious that she's referred to as the man's concubine. Why wouldn't he have the decency to make her his wife? But sadly, the truth is that the woman in this story has no real agency. Her name isn't given and her voice isn't heard. She's treated like property by the Levite and even by her own father. And like these things so often go, she eventually ends up back with the man that she fled from. Now, as the Levite and his concubine journey home... They end up spending the night with a man in Gibeah, and from there the story goes downhill. We read in verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, referring to the Levite and the homeowner, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, There was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel and speak. 
This story is nothing short of vomit-inducing. Driven by a thirst for power, driven by a perverted lust, the men of Gibeah commit the same sin as the wicked men of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis. The owner of the home treats his daughter and the Levite's concubine like cattle to be traded. The priest then throws this woman to the wolves to save his own skin and then has the audacity to lay down and go to sleep. The story is full of wicked men and one nameless, voiceless woman who suffers at their hands. And just when you think things couldn't get any worse, when the Levite wakes up the next morning and finds this woman dead, he treats her even worse. He doesn't even give her a proper burial. Instead, he uses her body to let everyone know how poorly he was treated. In chapter 20, this starts a chain reaction of division, violence, and death in Israel. And the book of Judges concludes, the very last verse of the book, chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Indeed. Now, this story, maybe more than any other in Scripture, might make you wonder, why in the world would this be included in the inspired word of God? Why would we preach on it? Why would we ever want to read this? Well, I think that repeated phrase gives us the answer about why it's here. That phrase, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 19 through 21 is a summary of the horror that ensues when sinful man is ruled by his own desires and his own devices when we pursue our own schemes. It's an intentionally jarring reminder of the depravity that lurks beneath the surface in our hearts, but can quickly rear its ugly head when someone like us, when sinners like us, have great power, but face little accountability for our actions and have no dedication to the things of God. This story is a sobering reminder of the evil depths that we are capable of plunging to. But sadly, this story sounds eerily familiar because we still see the strong abusing the weak today, especially when lots of power, little accountability and no fear of God are mixed together. And far too often, women are the primary recipients of that violence. But the sad truth is that if you keep reading further into first and second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. The Old Testament kings didn't solve the problem. When Israel got a king, it didn't instantly fix things. In Second Samuel set eleven, David, the closest thing to a perfect human king that you'll ever find in the Old Testament, David commits a terrible sin by sleeping with Bathsheba and then having her husband killed in battle. It's been debated for centuries whether or not Bathsheba could have truly consented to this relationship. But who was she to say no to the king? Who were those actresses to say no to Harvey Weinstein? Just a few chapters later, David's son Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar. Because David didn't exactly set a godly example, did he? 
A merely human king clearly wasn't the answer. And to this very day, the same sins are still committed day in and day out, roughly every two minutes. So what do Christians have to say to this world that we're in where sexual abuse is so commonly committed? What does the church have to say to a world where the powerful still prey on the weak? And what does scripture offer those guilty of this sin as well as those victimized by it? Well, a few observations. Number one, Israel didn't have a king, but we do. And that king is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the king that Israel needed and the king that our world still needs today. He's the king who doesn't use his power to exploit or abuse the weak, but rather to serve them. He's the king that doesn't treat people like property to be consumed, but as children to be rescued. He's the king that doesn't abuse our lives, but rather lays down his life for our eternal salvation. We have the king that Israel was lacking in the book of Judges and that our world so desperately needs today. And as servants and imitators of this king, we are not ruled by what's right in our own eyes. We are empowered to live in humility and holiness, using the power and the influence that we have over others responsibly for their good and God's glory, not to feed our own sinful appetites, not to do what is right in our eyes. He is our king. Thus, we as believers in Christ, we as Christians, we have no part in these sins. We have no excuse. And through our king's life and death and resurrection, victims of sexual abuse can find healing. Now, I use the word healing, not cure. It would be incredibly naive to say that Believing in Jesus will automatically erase the trauma and eliminate the pain or hide the physical, mental, and emotional scars of sexual abuse. But it is true that believers in Christ are granted a new identity centered around Christ. A new identity that isn't defined by the evils done to you by the hands of others. We have a king to offer the world. A good king. But then on top of that, we as a church can also be a support system for victims of sexual abuse. If you've been a victim of these sins, you don't have to hide. You don't have to live in isolation, dealing with the shame, the guilt, the pain, the anger, and the despair that someone else forced upon you. We can welcome, listen to, love, serve, pray for, and pray with victims. We can remind them regularly that they are loved by God. They are washed by the blood of Christ and they are being made new by the Holy Spirit, regardless of how other people have treated them. Another observation is that we can and we should take wise precautions to prevent sexual abuse within our own walls as much as possible. You know, for a long time now, people looking to commit sexual crimes have flocked to churches whether it's in the role of pastor, a volunteer leader, or just a regular old congregant. Lots of churches are very forgiving 
We give people the benefit of the doubt. We give people second and third and maybe even fourth chances. And that can be a good thing. But sometimes we can be very naive. And as a result, we can put people in harm's way. We tell ourselves that something like that would never happen at our church until it does. Now, policies and procedures can't hold back every evil person. However, at Prairie View, we do have policies in place to ensure as much as we possibly can that the people of our church, especially children, will not suffer sexual abuse, especially at the hands of our leaders, our staff and our volunteers. We should take every precaution that we can to keep this out of our church. And if, God forbid, it does happen here, we're called to handle it in a way that prioritizes justice for both the victim and the perpetrator. That means calling the police when a criminal act occurs. That means being open and transparent about our own sins and repenting where needed. That means not trying to sweep things under the rug or handle things in-house the way so many churches have tried and only made things worse for everyone. Another observation is that we can work to educate our people, especially our children, about what sexual abuse is. As the father of two young boys, I hope to provide a godly example to my sons of how they should treat all people, and especially women. We can teach our daughters their value and their worth as image bearers of God in an overly sexualized culture. And we can teach them all about the red flags to avoid when it comes to sexual abuse. One thing I find myself thinking about a lot and worried about a lot as the father of two young boys is the pervasive nature of pornography in our culture these days. The average age of a boy when he first sees pornography is about 11 years old. And Javen is six. That scares me to death that he's not that far away. And you might think that this has nothing to do with sexual abuse. You might think that this is a rabbit trail. Well, 88% of the most popular pornographic videos on the Internet feature some sort of violence. And 94% of that violence was committed against women. One of the greatest things that we can do for our young men is to keep them away from pornography. That will help them understand that the women they see on the street, the women they see on the Internet, are image bearers of God, are people, not property to be consumed. Now, that's a very brief summary of what Christians and churches may have to offer our world, where sexual abuse is a problem of great magnitude. Of course, there's more that can be said, and I may not be qualified to say all of it. But as we close, one thing we haven't really talked about is what do we say to perpetrators? We're talking about victims quite a bit, and rightfully so. But what do we have to say to those people who commit these sins? In January, Larry Nasser, a doctor employed by USA Gymnastics and Michigan State University, was sentenced up to 175 years in prison for sexually abusing at least 150 women, though we may never even know the full number. The first woman to publicly accuse Larry Nasser of his crimes was Rachel Den Hollander, an advocate for victims of sexual abuse, an outspoken Christian, and someone who suffered at Larry Nasser's hands. 
So what does the Christian faith say to perpetrators of this crime? What does the Christian faith say to someone like Larry Nasser? Well, I think Rachel Den Hollander said it better than I could. In her statement in the court, looking at Larry Nasser, this is what she said. You have become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires. A man defined by his daily choices repeatedly to feed that selfishness and perversion. Larry Nasser did what was right in his own eyes for a long time. You chose to pursue your wickedness no matter what it cost others. And the opposite of what you have done is for me to choose to love sacrificially no matter what it costs me. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love is God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness. But Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good works, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble, and you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you carry speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. But that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. It extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt. So that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God. Which you need far more than forgiveness from me. Though I extend that to you as well. Rachel Den Hollander vividly described Larry Nasser's crimes and the pain that he caused. She didn't hold back at all. She didn't sugarcoat anything. But she also showed that suffering doesn't have to have the final say. She upheld the need for justice while also extending forgiveness. She spoke truly of both God's grace to sinners, but also of God's wrath against sin. Rachel Den Hollander and all of us in this room, we live in a world where there often appears to be no king. A world where so many people seem to only do what is right in their own eyes, no matter what it costs others. Rachel Den Hollander has suffered because of that. And some of us may have suffered as well. But I pray that we would remember that in Christ, We have the king this world so desperately needs. The king who heals the abused and even has the audacity to offer redemption to the abuser. And one day the sins and the sufferings and the pain, the tears, the shame, the anger, the guilt, the despair of this world will be no more. 
Because one day our king will return to redeem this world. One day we will have a king on earth as it is in heaven. And in that day, everyone will do what is right in God's eyes. That is our hope. That is our healing. And that is the promise that scripture gives us in a world full of suffering. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we've had together. Father, I pray that every single one of us, whether we know nothing about sexual abuse or whether we know far more than we ever wanted to know about sexual abuse, I pray that we would look to you as the source of healing, the source of hope, the source of joy, even though people in this world may try to take hope and joy and healing away from us. Father, I pray that we will look to you as our king. Father, even though this world is corrupt and fallen and full of evil and full of sufferings, we know that this world is not all there is, and we know that this world, as it currently sits, will not win in the end. Father, thank you for Christ and the healing and hope that he gives us. I pray that we would be a church where people can find healing and hope, especially those who have suffered from these sins. I pray that we would pursue justice for those who have committed these evil acts, but that we would also consistently extend grace to every sinner. Father, again, give us wisdom and humility as we navigate this world, as we think about this topic, and as we love the people who have been affected by this. We thank you for your son. We ask this all in his name.